Hello and welcome to Talking TV, I'm Jake Cantor. This week, documentary royalty Norma Percy will reveal all about her new BBC Two series Inside Obama's White House. Also on the programme, we'll discuss BBC content supremo Charlotte Moore's plans to inject new life into BBC Two, plus find out why the gloves are off at Channel 4 over privatisation. Finally, we'll have previews of ITV Encore's latest original series Houdini and Doyle and BBC Three comedy Flat TV. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. So joining me this week, Outline Managing Director Laura Mansfield and of course the one and only Mr Stephen D. Wright. Hello. Hello. We are sat decamped in fact from Maple Street Studios in the uh, in the BAFTA boardroom. Woo! We've got the great and the good of TV looking down on us. Jon Snow. Mike Lee. The guy from Bagpuss. And then there's us lot. How are oh, we doing, yes. Laura? It's been a while. It has. It's been ages. I've, I've been wearing sort of multiple hats this year. So, uh, yeah. Is Pat keeping you busy? It's keeping me very busy. Well, rather, Pat isn't so much keeping me busy, but all of the, uh, the various charter renewal, issues around Channel 4, issues around terms of trade. Um, there's a lot on the agenda. Yeah, it's busy times. And Stephen, you're right. Uh, yeah, I'm just selling the big issue, and it's cold in those streets, you know. <laughs> okay, first up this week, uh, BBC TV channels and iPlayer controller Charlotte Moore set out her vision in front of industry Illuminati at the Serpentine on Monday. Six weeks into her big new job, she railed against the Culture Secretary's suggestion that BBC One has become less distinctive in recent years. Uh, Moore also offered a thinly veiled critique of BBC Two, arguing that she wants to make the channel confident again, with a particular emphasis on factual. Um, Should we start with BBC Two before we get into the distinctiveness debate? You were in the room, Laura. What did you make of uh, some of the comments? I thought it was a very, very impressive, bold and confident performance, and it was exactly what she needed to do at this time. She's taken on this big new role. There's all sorts of you know, instabilities, which I'm sure we'll come to talk about later on, that have been ruminating around the BBC. We still don't know where we are with charter renewal. There's concerns about the timeline about the white paper because of Brexit. And Charlotte coming out there and believing in what she does, believing in her channels, believing in her producers, um, and really issuing a rallying call for quality and distinctiveness was very inspiring. And I think that's what producers want. They want a confident leader who's going to back them and back their ideas and back risk. So, yeah, I thought she was incredibly impressive. And certainly in regard to BBC Two, yeah, I think she was right. And she did it very adeptly. She wasn't, you know, insulting about anything that's, that's, that's happened. But she was sort of marking a, a new way forward and probably a return to sort of some of those heartland values for BBC Two, which has been trying to pull in a maybe a younger, edgier audience with some later night commissions. And actually, you need to shore up your core audience, first of all. But so I, I thought it was impressive. It was a bit of an implied criticism. I don't know. I, I, am, I, am, am I reading too much? Into I think it? you're I, reading. Am I, think I you're, trying to? You're, you're doing the classic a, journalist thing of you <laughs> create know, an argument where there trying is trying to create some clickbait, you know, nonsense. I personally don't think BBC Two is in such a bad place, um, but I think that what Charlotte has done is exactly as, as Laura said. It's exactly what every producer wants to hear. You want to hear a creative person in charge of the BBC standing up against the John Whittingdale. You know, that's, that's all we want. We want somebody pushing the BBC. Everyone loves Charlotte. Right now, she can do no wrong. And this is exactly what we want. We want her firing on all cylinders and standing up for what she believes in. OK, well, let's take on the, uh, the, the beef between her and John Whittingdale. Do, do you think that BBC One has become less distinctive? No, that's what, absolutely that's not. What I mean, that's, 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 that's classic sort week. of Tory nonsense, you know. <laughs> 
Uh, Strictly was the, probably the best it's ever been. The dramas at the moment are unbelievable. BBC One right now is going through a stellar period. It really is. the golden age. So it's complete nonsense to say that it's, it's, it's lacking distinctiveness. Whether the voice is the same as the X Factor is a five-year-old kind of argument. It's got nothing to do with Charlotte. Uh, you know, personally, that, that's not what defines the BBC to me, except between seven and eight on a Saturday night. It's everything else, you know. And at the moment, the BBC feels really strong. I absolutely agree, and um, and I think she was quite right to kind of step forward. Um, there's nothing wrong with being popular, and I think her point about the audience rewarding the BBC for when they do challenge and when they do create distinctive programmes is really, really important. It, it, we love having those national conversation programmes, and the output has been incredibly strong. Um, Distinctiveness is as much about scale and quality and popular appeal as it is about anything else. I think the idea that the BBC should be doing unpopular niche programmes is absolutely not what anyone wants. The public don't want it. I don't actually think the government wants it, and I certainly said no producers want it. Can you measure distinctiveness? Well, I mean, I have an issue with this word that is being bandied around a lot because my concern is that everyone's definitions, unless we can really get ourselves to something super clear, are going to be slightly different. And therefore, that what some politicians may regard as distinctive may be erring towards the niche, whereas I think what, you know, the BBC is trying to mark out as distinctive, which is quality, which is... um, ambitious which is risk taking is something rather different so i also think there is a there is a question mark about you know distinctive as compared to what i don't really like the idea that the bbc should be trying to define itself as compared to anybody else what they should be doing is commissioning strong confident exciting programs on a huge range of subjects um so it's personally for me i i think it's a it's a phrase which is open to political nuance in a way that i'm not happy about uh, the one example i heard this week was happy valley which on paper doesn't sound distinctive you know a crime drama written by sally wainwright um uh starring sarah lancashire it, it has similarities to um, yeah, but so stuff on like, ITV, you know. That's like saying any yeah. drama sounds yeah. the same as any other drama when you say it on paper. The but Happy Valley is so distinctive. Exactly. It's, it's very so different, you know, and it doesn't have what ITV has to have, which is a bang every end of part, you know. When you have commercial TV, they've got slightly different rhythms. Happy Valley doesn't have that. Happy Valley sucks you in in that thing. You get the hour's worth of drama and you get an amazing performance from all the actors. It's, it's, it's incredibly distinctive. I mean, that, to me, that is... Right now, the kind of standout show, possibly The Night Manager is the other one, um, a different site sort of take. But, you know, these are, are lush, uh, great programmes that only the BBC can do. You know, Happy Valley was, was, was promoted last, uh, two years ago and it came out with no trails. It came out with no trails. And it became a kind of talking point because the BBC just stuck it out. And now, this time, they've, you know, they're, they're hyping it because they know how good it is. But that's the kind of thing about the BBC. It wasn't, it wasn't a big number when it first came out. It was just another drama. Same with Dr Foster. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the same. Um, and that's the thing about the BBC. You know, they stuck that out on a Wednesday night and it's like suddenly everybody's gone mad for it. You know, it's not what ITV would do and it's not what Channel 4 does, but that's the whole point of the BBC. It's not the same. It's different. It's all about quality. Not what, you know, and, and who, who listens to a Tory a, you know, MP talking about TV? They, talk, they know nothing about TV. They don't even watch TV. 
Okay, let's stick with the BBC briefly. I just wanted to touch on some news that uh, shocked many people last week, which was uh, Peter Sammer's decision to leave BBC Studios after just six months uh, to become the chief creative officer at Endemol Shine Group. Did this take you back a little bit? <laughs> we were surprised. I mean, there was an audible gasp in the office. <laughs> I think there was an audible gasp in, in many different directions, and I think everyone was, was rather taken aback. I mean, you know... Peter is one of TV's good guys. He's a great creative leader. Um, and therefore, you can see why people were so taken aback at the Beeb, um, why you know people at Endemolshine would, would really want to have him there. Um, but, you know, certainly I thought, you know, I think it was in your coverage where um, you were talking about um, some people uh, blaming Pact for doing too good a deal with the BBC over the BBC that's Studios a, that's arrangement. That's a suggestion from some people in-house, yeah. Um, which I think is, you know, slightly over the top. I mean, we did negotiate what we regard to be a very fair deal, which, um, you know, the idea of, you know, studios being able to go out into a commercial marketplace with, with an absolute guarantee of, you know, huge amounts of long returning series without putting any of those out to tender was simply going to be unconscionable. So what we negotiated was the fair beginning to a deal. And I'm, you know, certain that, you know, that Peter will do a fantastic job in his new role and the BBC will find someone equally impressive to, to fill, those, fill those shoes. Are we seeing these plans unravel before our eyes, Stephen? Or am I being negative again, as, as possibly, you would say? <laughs> possibly not. I mean, I know that in the BBC on March the 1st, when it came out, there were like, there were there was headless chickens running around because it totally, it was like a bomb going off. No one was expecting it. And I think the, the worst thing about his move is it, it, it can be seen as a kind of perceived criticism of the BBC Studios thing when it was such a nice fit. He, you know, he was exactly the right man to lead it and, and, and inspired confidence. And for him to leave can be seen as a sort of, you know, is this implied criticism of, or not? I, don't, I have no idea. But it's just, it's like another anti-BBC story. That's the problem. It's all of these things look like a weak BBC. The BBC will be fine. You know, the BBC Studios thing is a big, not a big sort of uh, administrative job, but people can do it. They, you know, it's... It's, uh, it, it is a little bit of this kind of Daily Mail sort of clickbait nonsense, you know, another story, another resignation, another leave. These happen all the time. But it's, it's just the fact that the BBC is in such an acute place right now that anything looks bad, you know. And um, it, it was, you know, I mean, it's the shock, really. That's the thing. It was the shock of the news. If we knew or we'd had a hint, people would be very relaxed about it. Now, two weeks later, people are thinking, OK, there's, you know, there's a couple of obvious candidates that might take over. Who, who, who would you say? I've heard two names at the moment. One is Mark Lindsay and the other one is uh, Tim Davey from Worldwide. Yeah, so I put that to the BBC this week and they denied it. Yeah, those are the two strong internal candidates I've heard on, you know, anecdotally. Um, You know, both of them will be able to do a good job. There could be another person that could step in. You know, it's not rocket science TV. It's about creative passion and and, uh, bravery and intelligence and whatever and managerial experience. You know, it's not one person in a lifetime can do that job. There are plenty of people that can do it. But it is just that thing of, oh, another BBC potentially negative story. You know, I'm sick of them. 
you know, the BBC does a good job. It's like, let's talk about another channel for once. You know? All right. On that note, <laughs> we'll swiftly move on. Uh, channel 4 boss David Abraham ramped up the rhetoric uh, over privatisation in a speech this week. Uh, he compared the DCMS's handling of the issue to a badly written drama and uh, said that selling Channel 4 is a solution in search of a problem. Uh, Abraham also called out his predecessors, Lord Grade and Luke Johnson, for their shifting views on privatisation, describing them as the flip and flop of UK broadcasting. This is good stuff, no? I think what's great, and it's inspiring, and I'm sort of saying it you know, about Charlotte Moore and actually Tony Hall came out fighting at the weekend, is... Seeing David coming out fighting in in, in defence of his own organisation and wanting some clarity, um, you know we've got lots of instability at the moment. You've got questions around Channel Four. You've got questions around you know what shape and size the BBC is going to be able to be. And in the indie sector, we've got a lot of questions about you know what, what's happening with the terms of trade, which is obviously very closely linked in with um, Channel Four. And obviously they were asking some questions about about the terms of trade last year. Um, so instability is really unhelpful. We're all looking to the government now to to come out and say where they are with the terms of trade, to say what's happening with Channel 4, and um, you know, to, to put the white paper out there, you know, ideally before we sort of have the um, the break in Parliament. Um, it was impressive to see David come out fighting. Um, instability is never a good thing for any organisation or any sector. Which is interesting because um, John Whittingdale is clearly a, a free market man and he is leaving a big industry in limbo over three huge issues. That is not good for No, business. I mean, <laughs> it, none of it makes sense. This is the problem. None of it seems to make commercial sense. It seems to be a sort of obsession to kind of crack down on the networks for no reason whatsoever. Nobody voted for this. Nobody wanted it. It wasn't in the manifestos. Certainly, I mean, Channel 4 privatisation exactly. wasn't in, I mean, Channel 4, wasn't in the What the hell are they doing? Why are they bothering with what has been a huge success and created a massive media industry that's the envy of the world? It doesn't make any sense. And the thing I picked up from David Abrahams is this is potentially going to happen now because if he's coming out fighting, this, you know, because I thought it was a bit of a pipe dream and just something to keep the kind of backbenchers happy, but it seems to be creeping you know, inexorably towards happening and no one seems to be able to do anything about it. That's what's so scary. Everyone seems very powerless. No one's in agreement. You, you know, not one person has stood up, well, other than Michael Grade, a, a, a Tory lord, you know, who's taken the, the Tory shilling, um, to say that it's a good idea. Nobody has said this is a good idea. Nobody, not one person. Well, I mean, I think the thing is, is that it can't just happen. It would have to go through Parliament. I mean, you know, this isn't something that could be rushed through the back door. So, yes, they can ask questions. And I think what what pe- what's uncertain is nobody knows what the direction of travel is. And that's the thing that's very uncertain. And actually sort of taking a step back... Um, Channel 4 is actually in a rude state of health. I think if you look, you know, and when you sort of look at what's being asked is, is Channel 4 um, in, a, in a good place for the next 10 years? Actually, yes, it is. It's got a very strong set of balance sheets. It's got, you know, the advertising um, market for Channel 4 right now is in a very good place. I mean, there are a range of questions about, you know, the diversity of suppliers seems to be kind of declining but you know those are things that they can that they can address and any issues seem to be stuff that are addressable there aren't any big underlying fundamental problems about channel 4 that privatization would necessarily address you know and i'm not going to sort of 
sit here hypocritically and say that private company equals bad thing, public equals good. You know, I'm chair of an organisation that represents some 450 private companies. Profit isn't a bad thing. Profit incentive is actually quite a good thing and it's quite motivating. However, what we've got right now is we've got an ecology that works incredibly well. We've got a balance of Channel 4, BBC, balanced with ITV Channel 5 in terms of our PSBs, that works perfectly. And if it's working, why change it? It's that sort of medical thing of first, do no harm. It's working. Leave it be. Um, The profit incentive is working incredibly well for ITV, which is in absolute robust health. Channel 5 is actually going from strength to strength. But equally, on the the other side, you've got the mix of of Channel 4 and BBC working incredibly well. Leave it alone, please. Okay, let's uh, let's move on from the heavy stuff, shall we, and uh, move on to Commissioner of the Fortnight now. Uh, thought we'd pick out a couple of gems from the 7,000-word programming release that uh, accompanied Charlotte Moore's speech. First up, Jeremy Paxman returning to BBC One in a special Brook Clapping documentary on Brussels. Yay! Yay! <laughs> We're all excited about that one. Are we all excited about the well, I mean, season of programming again, on the listen, referendum? He's, he's, a, he's a heavyweight. You know, he needs to be on the BBC. That's the thing. He's, he's good at what he does. And he's good at these kind of big, heavy subjects. He, I think he'd be make a, a great presenter. And a season on Black Bretons? About time. Yep, all good stuff. I think, you know, we need more of that. I mean, so I suppose the thing that I find slightly depressing is, oh, it's a season on Black Britons. Why can't we just have these programmes all the time instead yeah. of just in a special season in a special little box? But yes, great. I mean, absolutely celebrate it and delighted to see Sugar Films getting their first commission. So yes, big cheerleader for that. Great. Those are your headlines for this week. Thanks to Stephen and Laura. Uh, next up, we'll be speaking to acclaimed documentary maker Norma Percy and her executive producer, Paul Mitchell. Uh, Percy is known for getting under the skin of seismic political events, bringing viewers blow-by-blow accounts of decisions that have shaped the world. It has garnered her countless awards for films including Putin, Russia and the West and Watergate. Uh, Norma and Paul's latest project is BBC Two's Inside Obama's White House, which aims to provide a definitive account of Barack Obama's eight-year tenure as US president. Norma and Paul will be with us in a moment to discuss the four-part series, but first here's the moment Obama discovered that he had to compromise over his trillion-dollar stimulus package back in 2009. This gang of 18 came together with the primary focus of wanting to reduce the cost by at least $100 billion. $100 billion of government spending probably shaves about a half a percentage point off the unemployment rate. So that's a lot of people that are going to lose their jobs if you shave $100 billion off the fiscal stimulus. And so, yes, it was very painful and, and very sad to watch. Obama decided to accept the cuts, confident they would buy him the votes he needed. He flew out to a Democratic Party retreat It is great to be here with so many friends. Uh, Thank you for giving me uh, a reason to use Air Force One. It's pretty nice. (laughs) Uh, So we're with Paul Mitchell at Brook Lapping HQ. 
And we're hoping Norma will be with us in, in a few minutes. I think uh, she's walking off the tube as we're, <laughs> as we're speaking, yeah. She'll, she'll join us in good time, I'm sure. Um, feels like a very topical time to be putting this documentary out. I'm sure that was the intention. It was the intention. It wasn't meant to be quite this tight from completion to broadcast, but... Uh, you know, it, it is a current affairs documentary, so that's okay. We actually filmed, I was in Washington last Wednesday filming the president. So I got back Thursday morning. We cut him into program one on Friday. We cut him into program two on Saturday. On Sunday, we cut him into program three. And I think today, as soon as we finish, I'm going to view program four to see what they've done with that. Gosh, so it has really been to the wire, hasn't it? It has, and I haven't, you know, I haven't done a lot of sleeping. In fact, we have a screening tonight of the program, which we still have one tiny little bit of online to do. As soon as I finish this, I'm going to go, we'll have the program for viewing, then I'm going off to the post house to uh, cut one more bit of, because I found a mistake in the online, uh, of program one, then we're screening it tonight at the embassy, and sometime today I have to buy a shirt, because I haven't done any laundry in a week, <laughs> and I have no clean shirts. <laughs> Talk us through that last week, what was that like going out and interviewing him? Uh, we were supposed to get 20 minutes, and he gave us 40, uh, which I guess meant he was enjoying himself. Um, it was it was quite extraordinary. But there's such a breadth of issues that you cover in in this series. How did you hone in on the the specific conversations that you wanted well, to talk about? I'd like to say we were all collegial and cooperative, <laughs> and everybody said, no, 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 you have my questions for the president. But no, the entire production team fought like cats and dogs to get there each thing. We basically honed it down to... To four questions, um, but I managed to sneak one or two supplementals in while we were sitting in the chair, um, and we tried to get you know one for the first program, one for the second program, one for the third program, one for the fourth program. And but because of the, you know you don't quite ever know exactly what he's going to say, so sometimes you know there was a bit unexpectedly, and when he was talking about um, race relations, where he suddenly talked about climate change and something that's in the first program, yeah, it just it just happened that way. Yeah, you can't control interviews sometimes, I guess, can you? Take us back to the beginning uh, of this process. Where did the spark come from for this series? Well, you know, he's Obama's exactly my age. Like He's like two days different. And he's kind of the first American president that I can think of really in my lifetime, even more than Clinton, who I sort of thought of as like a normal human being. And um, just really interesting. And I thought, God, you know, America suddenly becomes such an interesting place. And in some ways quite ugly. You know, there's a lot of ugliness um, around, you know, he's provoked all this kind of polarization and people, you know, got really angry at him, mostly as far as I can tell, because he was this, Af you know, the first African-American president. They didn't like it. He was making big changes to the country. And I suddenly, it's just really, really interesting. And we, Norma and I, uh, and Brian Lapping, took the idea to Janice Hadlow, who was then still at BBC Two, and um, she ran with it absolutely. She instantly saw it and um, then you know you the usual kind of let's try to raise the finance which took forever and then it was just a question of slogging through and you know trying to get the bodies to actually tell the story which you know all these things it's always hard how long a process has that been how how how, how often have you been back and forth from Washington to, to get the well, people that you want the process has been basically three years I got a lot of frequent flyer miles <laughs> <laughs> I mean you got access to such a dazzling array of people how do you do that well, it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, that's just a slog. I mean, you know, and, you know, bless the BBC. I mean, they do give this company an amazing amount of time to do these things. And, you know, it, that's part of the trick is simply time. But you, know, you write to them, you say, this is what we're going to do. But we do make some promises. We promise that we don't 
uh, we don't put historians in the programs. We don't put other journalists in the programs. We don't put sort of experts in the programs. And so we tell the people that actually you are given a chance simply to tell your story. We're not asking you to do analysis. We're not asking you to predict the future. All we're saying is to say, this is what happened. And most people, you know, even when they like violently disagree with each other, they always think they're right. So if you give people the chance to say, this is why I did what I did, and this is what I believed, and this is the truth, um, even though their versions of the truth sometimes diverge from the other person's version of the truth, they, they, they generally want to do that. I mean, even like dictators and mass murder, you know, we did um, Death of Yugoslavia with the, about the, the war in Bosnia. And all those guys, you know, they, you know they, they, none of them were saying, oh, yeah, I'm a mass murderer. They were always saying, oh, we were doing this to protect the Serbian people or whatever. So it's kind of the same process. You say to the people in the administration, just we're giving you a chance to just say what happened, tell us the story. And they think, well, nobody actually listens to our story because they're always stuck sticking their you know, historian saying or an analysis saying this is, you know, analyst saying this is what happened or that's what happened. And we don't do that. So that's a big, big attraction for people. And then, you know, once you do the interviews and they can see that you haven't tricked them because they're all quite tight with each other still, even the ones who've left the administration, they tend to talk to each other and say, yeah, yeah, we saw these people. They were these okay. These guys are legit. Yeah. And, allow and it tends to, to be a... Allow a them the time to interview you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it tends to be a virtuous circle, but it takes a long time. Oh, look. Hello. Really <laughs> And I'm pleased to say that Norma's just uh, just joined us in the room. Um, we were just discussing the way you get people to open up. What's your technique specifically? I think it's it's a sort of form of networking, really, isn't it? It's a one thing leads to another. First, we write a lot of letters, and uh, we make a lot of phone calls. It's all a question of getting the first breakthrough. Um, and I was trying to think what it was with us. It was that nice man who used to work at the White House. What was his name? Oh, the the, w- chief, he was chief of staff of the former, White House. Yeah, A former chief of staff. Peter Rouse. Peter Rouse. Peter Rouse was chief of staff for a fairly short amount of time. And he absolutely was not going to be in the program. He didn't do it. He works mm-hmm. in some big law firm. Not because he's kind of shy. He, he doesn't, you know, but he really liked what we did. So he started, he told two or three people, I met these people. I really like them. I'm not going to be on camera, but you should talk to them. Mm-hmm. But, that was your but, gateway, that was your key. The, but, but, I mean, what, we explain what we do, which is to try and show on television how big decisions are made. And that's all we do. You know, we don't, we don't have opinions, we don't point fingers, we, we just get people to tell us what happened at, when big decisions are made. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play stupid for a moment. Why do you think that makes good television? That seems like an obvious question, but well, uh, it'd be I, good to I get be- your views. I began life by working in the House of Commons, and I discovered what um, members of Parliament have as a really ringside seat on how big decisions are made. And I'm trying to give the viewers the same thing. It's a combination of um, gossip and political science. I mean, everybody really wants to know secrets. They really want to know um, how things happen. And if people can tell it to you as they remember it, I used to have a technique. I would go up, I started in British politics, so I would go up to a cabinet minister and say, tell me about the night that Harold Wilson resigned, just like he went home and told your wife that night. And it worked quite well. You know, they didn't give you the sort of boring long speech that politicians usually do. They, they, They told you a story. So... 
when Paul and I started on this first, our first big series, uh, which was the Second Russian Revolution, and we had to try and get Politburo members to speak. This is the Soviet Union, and we, I, when I finally met my first Politburo member, um, he, I, I said, okay, tell me about the night that Gorbachev was elected, just like you went and, and told your wife that night, and the look of such complete horror passed his face that um, I realized um, he wouldn't tell his wife anything like that. <laughs> but we were really lucky in that case. This was the era of Gorbachev and glassness was happening and things were getting more and more open. And by the time we finished, um, they were telling us things that British politicians would never tell us because the rules were off and they didn't have any new rules yet. They thought that um, on the BBC you had to tell the truth, and they told us everything. And they told the truth. Yeah. Tell us about the process of pulling it all together, because obviously you mix your talking heads with a lot of archive. That must be quite a painstaking process. How do you identify what you want? Because it's for broadcast especially, we have a fantastic, fantastic uh, secret weapon. One of the best archive researchers in the business, a guy by the name of Declan Smith, who probably a lot of people who listen to this will know, uh, and he's fantastic. And Declan always just kind of finds you that extra 2% of shots that you don't think exist. That that really, really, yeah, that really, really (laughs) makes a difference. We use interviews to find out what people said in meetings and archives makes you feel makes you feel like you're seeing what's happening in meetings so and even um barack Obama walking into a room people sitting around a table at the actual meeting even before do you, they started do you, talking do you make sure that the meetings that are being referenced are the ones that are in the photos what try yeah we try. Try. but we actually try. i mean uh, what's amazing yeah. about a president of the united states is there's a there is a photographer who is with him, basically, except for when he's in his living quarters, 24 hours a day. Every single meeting, there's a photographer there. And quite often, there's video cameras for almost all of them. So it's, it's all there. The White House doesn't give it all to you. But this White House has been pretty open. You know, they have this Flickr page with about 10,000 photos on it. And you can, if you want to know, if you want to see a picture of him meeting the economic team in the Roosevelt Room on the 14th of March 2009, you type it all in and poof, there's a photo. So, you know, suddenly they're talking about, you know, Tim Geithner or Christy Romer says, you know, where there we were sitting across from the president. You look at the picture and there they are. <laughs> it's fantastic. And the, the snippets from behind the scenes of the inauguration, that was l- lovely. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, not, from, that's from the White House video, video yeah. unit. I mean, and in fact, you know, the, the, the quality is kind of low res, but it's just, just magic. And, you know, that bit of her padding, yeah. padding Obama's coat. It's like a little them, domestic yeah, scene, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they work together. I mean, archive film is also research. I mean, we, we find out about a meeting, we ask for the archive film, and then we see the people who were there, and that, that tells us people we can go and interview that we hadn't realized were at the meeting. So that it, they, they work together, yeah, interviews. Uh, and another really good, because it won't be in this episode, but in the fourth episode, they have the, um, we have the, uh, the decision to go for bin Laden. And I mean, this is a really good example of how this stuff works, because we met somebody who was a lawyer in the White House, she said, oh, you need to talk to this other lawyer in the White House. Um, and we were talking to one lawyer about gun control. But she said, you know, my friend Mary, you know, she really was around for a lot of stuff. And she was there for um, all of the bin Laden meetings. And, you know, we didn't have any idea. And, you know, she's a professor at Georgetown University or something now. And we went to see her and she was just like 
because she's not like one of these, you know, hard bitten CIA, you know, you know, been killing people for a thousand years type people. She was like, it was like an every man in the room describing what it was like. Yeah, every woman in this case, every person in the room, and she's fantastic. I mean, she suddenly makes you feel, you know, it's like you've been parachuted into the room by somebody who really talking about it with fresh eyes. Okay, and, and just finally, do you do you think that documentaries like this are a, a, a dwindling art form these days, or um, are you optimistic about uh, the future? I've been doing it for more than twenty five years, and all, all the whole time I've been doing it, people have said it's dead, it's not going <laughs> to happen. Uh, but they cost a lot of money. I mean, they take a lot of time, and in television, that means they cost a lot of money, and sometimes we feel it gets harder and harder to to get the money when we when we started at granada granada would just pay for what we did and we worked on a series called end of empire 14 parts about how britain left uh, all its colonies and we had as long as it took to make it and that was the money now the bbc pays half we have to spend a certain amount of time getting broadcasters around the world to pay the difference and that that takes time and when we get the money we have the money and we have to finish more or less on time <laughs> do you share that view Paul? yeah i mean if you think about it i mean end of empire which is like i was in school when they were you know made it um uh <laughs> but, you know think about that 14 hours and it's not 14 hours of soap i mean it was 14 pretty serious hours i mean can you imagine that being made today the trick i suppose is going to be if somebody figures out a way of doing what we do but making it more streamable, making it more sort of clippable. I don't think anybody's actually quite figured out how to do that yet, but that feels to me like whoever does is going to be the person who keeps his art form alive. It um, it takes an organization like the BBC. It takes an organization that's devoted to a certain amount of quality uh, that may not be a vast money owner, but has feels that they have some duty to history and so forth, something like that. Um, well, I, look, one final question. I know, I know <laughs> we're running low on time, but uh, man just on that heart. point, are you concerned about the future of the BBC? Well, as I said, people have been concerned about serious broadcasting since I started, and somehow... But does it feel like there's there's a bit more of a genuine threat this time around? So that's not it's not our field. We're historians. <laughs> <laughs> You're the journalists. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Well, look, thank you for your time, guys. Inside Obama's White House launches on BBC Two at nine pm on the fifteenth of March. Previews time now, and back with me are Laura Mansfield and Stephen D. Wright. Uh, we shall start with the latest original production on ITV's pay TV drama channel, ITV Encore. Uh, Big Talk Productions, this series, Houdini and Doyle, stars Stephen Mangan and Michael Weston as odd couple super sleuths, Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini in 20th century Britain. In this clip from the first of 10 episodes, Doyle wants police permission to look at a supernatural crime, but the chief is sceptical, and so is Houdini. Why do you two care so much about this? Every time you arrive at the scene of a bloody murder, the first thing you have to do is to find the ones left behind, the ones who've not been physically harmed, but on whom all the pain will land, who've had their loved ones ripped away from them forever. But what if that wasn't the truth? Every religion for centuries has told us that death isn't the end. And now, thanks to the many staggering advances in science, we may be able to actually prove it. Nothing is as it was just 10 years ago. Maybe not even death 
What a complete and utter load of crap. Uh, Stephen getting a bit... Uh, Stephen Mangan, that is, mm-hmm. getting a bit hammy there. A little bit hammy. Um, <laughs> I thought I, I quite enjoyed this. It felt a little bit American to me in the sort of slightly ridiculous plot line. You know, much more sort of American feeling in that sense. But I enjoyed the costume drama element of it. The period sets were very impressive. It looked expensive. You know, it didn't look cheap. But was as a kind of an hour of entertainment, it felt a bit like, oh, you know, I've seen this. You know, it, it, it did feel a bit like I've seen this before. You know what I mean? However, would I watch it if it was on? Yes, of course I would, because, you know, I'm a sucker for that kind of cheese. You know, Victorian cheese, basically, is what we're talking about. <laughs> Laura, you, do you, would, you, would you come back for more? I would. I thought it was great fun. I mean, it was polished. It was, you know, unashamedly commercial. I mean, if you can kind of imagine a combination between Ripper Street and Sherlock, it's kind of aiming at that. So, you know, not the most original piece in the world, but highly enjoyable. Um, I'd watch it with my family. Um, yeah, more of that, please. I mean, it looked expensive. That was the thing that really... It didn't look like they'd shot in one corner of a room or something. It, I was very impressed by the sets, you know, and, and I was trying to work out where have they shot this. And I presume it's somewhere in Canada, I think. Yes, yeah, so I've Canada, you know, Canadian it, money. It, I then. couldn't work out where it was because it looked authentic. They, you know, the period... Uh, and that just, you know, says a lot. I mean, they did, you know, the, the script is possibly the weakest thing. The, the background, the, the, you know, the wigs and the costumes, amazing. You know, worth tuning in for alone. It was a bit stinky, I thought. <laughs> oh, boo, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun, exactly. It was, I mean, that's the thing when I said it's about an American. It was, it, you know, this wasn't pretending to be Sherlock. It was trying to be carry on Sherlock, you know, and it had that kind of American thing where you can watch 14 episodes like this, you know. They never learn anything. Well, they're doing they 10 episodes, get, so. Yeah, you know, and that sort of sort of nascent feminism of having the first female constable, which I had to try and think, is that really true? But, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it had everything. It had what, everything. About, what about the chemistry? Not sure. I mean, I remember the guy who played Houdini in uh, House. He was in House. Oh, Michael was Weston. He? Yeah, because this is produced by the guy who produced House. And I never really liked him in that. And I found him a slightly odd, because he is playing in a sort of different style to the other actors. It's very Englishy. And then you've got this kind of white, quite manic American style. But I think it'll gel. I think it'll, you know, it'll all come together. I think it'll be a hit. I think people will get really into this. I mean, you know, you've got Houdini, you've got a bit of history, you've got, you know, Conan Doyle, you've got, you know, like you say, a female detective, not quite sure how historically accurate, but, you know, she was very good looking. Stephen Mangan was good fun. I mean, it was just, it was a good fun romp of a... And a bit of of danger. It's got to stand out, hasn't it, on on pay TV, because it will be on Sky. I think they're going to show it on ITV as well in some form. So, um, Isn't this ITV Encore, not Sky? ITV Encore, yeah. But that is only available on Sky. Oh, yes, okay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I watch a lot of these types of shows. I mean, I'm a great one for these sort of completely nonsensical plots where, you know, magic exists or your headmaster's a demon or something like that, you know, because there's always these kind of ridiculous things. And they are exactly that. They're escapist romps. You know, they're good fun. They cheer you up for an hour. They stop you thinking about the miserable, you know, existence of life. I'm going to start crying now. Uh, you know, it's all, that's what it's about. This, this is not about winning BAFTAs. This is about entertaining the family. 
Okay, Houdini and Doyle gets underway on the 13th of March at 10.15pm on ITV Encore. Uh, Finally this week, fire up the laptop because we have a treat from BBC Three. Uh, Flat TV started life as a comedy feed pilot in 2014. And now Tom Rosenthal and Nazos Manalo have created a full four-part series. Uh, They star as two flatmates who battle mundanity by imagining their lives through the prism of television. Uh, In this clip from the first episode, Tom and Naz are moments away from the eBay purchase of the century. Oh, 30 seconds to go. eBay is such a buzz. And we're on £17. Pounds. Do we have £18? Pounds? £18.25, pounds £18.50. Okay, do stop that. I'm doing an auction. £19. Pounds. Yes, looking for £20 pounds now. Yes, thank you, sir, Mr. BG. 74 Do we have £21? Pounds? I'm biding my time. It's bidding, Tom, not biding. Bidding. And then I pounce like a snake, like a business snake. £22, pounds, 23 then 24 Oh, it's neck and neck, and look at the price that from BG. 74 on the inside, steaming into first place. I mean, that is horse racing. Oh, come on, 10 seconds left. Going once. I lay the trap. Going twice, just hurry up and bide. I coaxed them in. Going three times. And pounce. Yes! Oh! <laughs> Maybe type in coffee table? Yeah. Guys, <laughs> you're whispering away during that clip. <laughs> I, I um, felt very old in the first five minutes watching this. I, I suddenly thought, oh my God. You don't know what eBay is. I thought this is for the young people. <laughs> and then slowly, slowly... After about the first five minutes, I started to get into it, and then I kind of enjoyed it. But initially, that sort of, we're so young, we're so crazy, we're so wacky, ooh, it was a bit sort of like, oh, my God. you know. And then it started to become more conventional as a comedy, so you know, I, I kind of enjoyed it then. I think that point's absolutely right. It's not for us, sadly, Stephen. We're just too old I'm for still BBC hip. Three. I really no, liked it. In my head, I am still hip, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to kind of face the fact that I'm 45 years old and I'm so far out of the BBC Three demographic. So, yeah, you know, it was good fun. It's exactly what BBC Three is for. They should not be making comedies that appeal to me. They should be making comedies that my kids desperately want to watch. Um, Would they so, want to watch this? Do you know what? I have no idea. They seem to watch only Netflix at the moment. So as far as I'm concerned, anything that could kind of lure them back to something British that's not American um, would be a good thing. They love the in-betweeners, so I don't see why they wouldn't love this. It felt quite fully formed, it, I, I guess, because that's been because it's been piloted. I mm. think they did something even before the comedy feeds pilot. They did some shorts on this. So I mean, that's the problem. It felt a bit like you need to know what's going on before you can enjoy it. So it didn't necessarily do that classic thing of, well, let's you know, gently tease the viewer in. But I like that. You have to be in it or you're not. Sort yeah. of thing. So that kind of, that literally the first five minutes is a bit of a baptism of fire. And then it does settle down. You have the kind of traditional male loser role and the, the romantic person who lives next door and the whatever. You, know, you can see the kind of traditional tropes of comedy coming. You know, I like Tom Rosenthal. I think he's brilliant. I really, and I could watch him sort of do anything. So I, you know, I did, I did start laughing. You know, and that's, the, that's the test. I started laughing. You know, I enjoyed the naked shots at the end. That was worth waiting for. Um, you know, I mean, it was. It, you know, it ended, and I thought, yeah, this is good. And you know, what about sending up the TV shows? Well, what, some what, of what, what, are we, what was on there? There was Big Brother. I mean, there was Big Brother, which I thought worked. I thought the Big Brother kind of conceit worked better. The it, the, the initial clip that we just played was a bit didn't seem to make sense. It's um, a bit of a news spoof, and yeah. I'm afraid the news spoof is the thing that's sort of slightly put me off because I was a real sort of advocate of you know the day to day, and they you know you can't do news spoofs better than the day to day. So, um, but then that does show my age, sadly. Yeah, I'm too busy skateboarding with the kids to to, to worry about day to day. I'm I'm much more with it than than Laura, of course. <laughs> um, no, I mean you know the, the, it sort of works that kind of the grammar of TV. 
Um, but it's also hyper unrealistic as well. You know, the kind of the madness of let's wait in all day for an eBay thing, you know. Hmm. Um, but that's what comedies do. You know, they, they, you have to buy into that world and it definitely sort of works. And, and as Laura says, this is for the kids. So, you know, two old age pensioners talking about it isn't hardly a, a ringing endorsement. <laughs> a bit of space about it, maybe? A bit. I mean, I, you know, I don't like to think, oh, that's exactly like such and such. It's, a, it's about originality. I did think it felt original. That was the big strong thing. It felt different. I hadn't seen something exactly like this. You know, tonally, they were, they were taking a few risks. There was a few kind of, um, I, you know, I, 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 there was bits that made me laugh out loud, you know. The scatological element was, was particularly uh, funny, I thought, you know. Good. Quite a lot of that. I like your positivity. I, for one, would recommend it. And uh, it debuts online on BBC Three later this month. Uh, that's your lot for this episode. Uh, thanks to all my guests, Norma Percy, Paul Mitchell, Stephen D. Wright and Laura Mansfield. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until then, I'm Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye. Goodbye.